All right, good morning, Four Oaks. If we don't know each other, I am Pastor Paul. So glad that you are here. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, and you might want to fasten your seatbelts as you do. Um, you know, we've talked um, a good bit about how this past season has been one of just real loss for, for many of you, many of us. And we've had folks pass away from, from COVID. We've had um, elders pass away from, from cancer. We've had longtime members who've gone on to be with the Lord. I, and, and let's be honest, one of the chief places when we have experienced loss like that can really just happen right here in the church. Um, I remember when my dad, um, when my mom passed away about seven years ago, my dad, for the longest time, anytime he would come into church and would worship, he couldn't worship without crying. And that's just part of the nature of spiritual loss. Even though as believers we know that it's temporary, yet at the same time, um, when we have forged spiritual bonds with husbands, wives, children, community group members, um, longtime friends, they're no longer with us, it, is, it can really create this real sense of, of grieving and of loss. And I want, you to, I want to encourage you to kind of put yourself in that place for a moment because that's where Paul is as he is writing Romans 9. You know, he has just laid out this amazing exposition in Romans 1 through 8 where he has just um, bulleted out for us promise upon promise from the gospel of God, like who we are in Christ and our assurances based upon what Christ has done for us and the fact that neither love nor height nor depth or death, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But yet Paul then has to kind of just stop for a moment and you can tell, and we looked at this last week, he's reflecting. He's, he's, he's coming to terms with the fact that as you look at the room of the people of God and the church in Rome, not everyone is there that he wished were there. More specifically, Paul talks about the great anguish that he has in his heart because his kinsmen of the flesh, the ethnic Jews, the Old Testament covenant people of God, his brothers in the flesh, they are no longer there. They, despite the fact that Jesus was a Jew, that Paul was a Jew, that the apostles were Jews, the early church, all the early converts were Jews, yet now, a generation later, sitting there in the church of God in Rome, by and large, there are no Jewish people. There's a few, there's a remnant. But, but by and large, the Jewish people have rejected their own Messiah. And this really creates a theological crisis, whether we know it or not. And Paul anticipates this theological crisis because you could imagine people there in the church in Rome saying, well, well Paul, if God has not been faithful to his promises to the old covenant people of God, then how can we be sure that he'll be faithful to his promises to us, the new covenant people of God? Paul, Romans 1 through 8, that all sounds wonderful. Life and the gospel and truth and forgiven sins. But Paul, just because you say it doesn't make it so, how can we trust that God's word will have its way? That's Paul's concern here in Romans chapter 9. And may I submit to us this question of has the word of God failed? I believe that's really at the bottom of all of our existential and spiritual doubts that we have in this life. 
that if you want to boil it down at the end of the day as believers, we, we, we look at our lives, we, we look at our marriage and say, God, has your word failed there? We look at our children, our families, God, has your word failed? Are you going to be true to your promises? We look at, our, look at our own bodies or our vocations or our stations of life. We look at our sufferings and struggles for those near and dear to us. We fill that, that empty chair, right, at the dining room table or in the sanctuary pew, and, and we question, God, intellectually, I, I know your word has not failed, but I'm really wrestling and struggling with this in my heart. I, I, I submit to you, that's the subtext of all of our doubt, all of our unbelief, all of our worry, all of anxiety, all of our anxiety, and it's what Paul wants to address, not just with the church in Rome, but with us for wherever we live. God, can I trust that your ultimate purposes in my life will be fulfilled? That's the question. That's what Paul wants to address. So we're going to be in Romans 9 this morning, verses 6 through 13, and if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to read this passage together. Verse 6, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray. Father, we always stand in desperate need of your Holy Spirit opening the eyes of our heart to your word. But Lord, we are particularly um, aware of that this morning. Lord, there, there is so much about this text that um, crashes against the cultural winds of our age and idolatrous thoughts of who we think you ought to be and how you ought to work. And so, Lord, we want to, I, I really pray for the, for the people of Four Oaks that you would, that you would show us this, this word is good. This word is true. It is right. It is the solid rock upon which we can plant our feet. And so, Father, by your grace, Lord, as we experience our own loss, our own questions about your promises, that we can gain great assurance from your word. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. And if you're thinking it's warm right now, that's just a fig newton of your imagination, okay? We have mechanics working on the machines even as we speak. I'm not, I'm not joking about that. All right, now, in answering this question about whether the word of God has failed or not, Paul uses a rhetorical device, okay? And, and you may not be familiar with this rhetorical device by name, but we use it all the time. And in the Greek, it's called prosopopeia. And for, for, for lunch this afternoon, y'all can have a little 
little contest at, 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 at your dinner table, who can say that the most, the fastest, the most number of times, right? Prosopopeia, what does that mean? It's a figure of speech in which an imaginary or absent person is represented as speaking or acting. So kids, students, a lot of you use prosopopeia all the time, you don't even know it. You're, you're, you're asking your, your parents permission to do something. And it's something that you might think they'd be inclined to say no about, right? You wanna go somewhere with this person or you wanna spend the night with that person. And as you're asking your, prepare, your parents for permission, you already have the speech in your mind, right? You already know what their objections are gonna be. You're gonna to get too tired, not gonna get enough sleep, you're not gonna be able to do your homework or finish your chores, and of course, you have an answer for all of those things, right? You anticipate the objection and you get ahead of it by answering it, and then your parents still say no. What do you know about that, all right? Well, that's what Paul's doing. He's just made a statement. My heart's breaking, right? That, 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 the, the, the kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jewish people, they've fallen away. I would be accursed if I could on their behalf. And he has made this statement. He has shown his heart. But now Paul anticipates a question. And in anticipating the question, he wants to provide the answer. The question, obviously, that arises from this theological crisis in the early church is, has the word of God failed? And so this morning, there's going to be three things we look at. First of all, Paul is going to say no, of course. What do we think he was going to say? But there's going to be one reason. That's our first point. Paul's going to use two examples to, to bolster his point. And then we're going to draw three conclusions. All right, you got it? So one reason, two examples, three conclusions. All right, let's look at, the first of all, the reason. Paul says in verse 6, very clearly, it's not as though the word of God has failed. All right, so Paul just states it right off the top. He's like, let, let, me, let, me, let me make this crystal clear. And then he makes three statements about this that, in a sense, sort of all say the same thing. All right, so, so let's, let's look at the text. All right, first of all, he says in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's the first statement. The second statement's in verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And then finally in verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it is the children of promise. Now, what, what is Paul essentially saying here to this charge that the word of God has failed? One of the things that we see repeatedly in the Old Testament, it's a common theme, it's actually been a theme throughout the history of the church, is this idea of God raising up a remnant. In other words, there is a people within a people. And we see this, for example, several places in the Old Testament repeatedly. God delivered the whole nation out of Egypt, right? Two million strong but only a very few, a remnant, got to go to the promised land. You see, there, there was, most of them perished in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And just because they were rescued and had all the benefits of redemption, a front row on the seat of redemptive history, didn't mean that their hearts were automatically changed. So God raises up a remnant. 
a group of people within the people that are faithful, that are trusting in God. Remember in Elijah, Elijah is weeping before God. Why? Because all Israel has turned out to be idolaters. They've run after foreign gods. And, and Elijah's at a really desperate place, but then God says, but Elijah, wait a minute. I'm doing something that you don't know anything about. I have preserved what? A remnant. There are actually 7,000 dudes over here, and we gotta know, what were these 7,000 dudes doing? I don't know, right? Playing shuffleboard or whatever. They, they were over here, and God says, and they have not bowed the knee. And I'm preserving a people within a people, okay? Now, here's, here's, here's what Paul is driving at. And again, we've, we said some of this last week, but it bears repeating. When God had his chosen people in the Old Testament, the Jews, that did not automatically mean all Jews were saved. See, the, the people of Israel were chosen in the sense that they were stewards of the grace of God. God had entrusted the covenants, the law, the promises, the kingship to the people, but that did not guarantee salvation for every single person. Only a changed heart does that. So here's Paul's central point. And guys, I think it should be obvious it's application for us, right? God's promises and his word have not fallen simply because his word has not transformed all hearts. See, just by virtue of your outward identity, whether it's your skin, and remember, we, these are all huge identity markers for us in our culture, right? But, it, but whether it's our skin color, our race, our social class, our socioeconomic status, our theological heritage, none of those things guarantee us salvation only a changed heart, faith in Christ does that. And guys, this should be applicable to us right here, right now. Do you realize that in this room this morning, there is a people within a people? There's a people within a people. Not everyone here is trusting in Jesus Christ, most likely. Just because you've been baptized, profess faith, you go to a community group, you have your child dedicated, you have your wedding in a church, that doesn't mean your heart has been transformed by the gospel. That is the only basis for saving faith. So, so please hear me say this, you've heard me say it many times, don't base your confidence in your heritage. Don't base your confidence in your reputation or your stature or your lineage, or your ancestry, or even your biblical and theological legacy. Don't, don't put your hope in that. Your only hope, my only hope, is in the assured work of Jesus Christ on the cross on behalf of us. That, that's it. And so God's promises have not failed. His word has not failed. Because simply by electing a people, the Old Testament people, the covenant people of God, did not ensure that they would all automatically have saving faith. That's Paul's point. Now, what Paul wants to emphasize to us is that saving faith is always supernatural faith. All right, and that brings us to our 
point number two. Two examples Paul wants to roll out here to show us that saving faith is nothing if it is not a supernatural, providential work of the sovereign God. Look at verse 9. Paul says, For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, Paul is quoting Genesis 18 here, and he's wanting to show us how the promises of God work. Now, you'll recall this if you were here the days that we we preached through the book of Genesis. If you haven't done that, go home and listen to all of those, every one, by next Sunday, all right? And you'll be blessed, right? God made a promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, through your seed, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. I'm going to give you a multitude of descendants. And this is not going to be just any child. This is going to be a child with Sarah. Now, you know, Abraham was no modern biologist, right, uh, or scientist, but he kind of scratched his head and said, well, God, that, that's probably going to be a problem, see, because my wife is past childbearing age. She's older. Do you hear me say it the way I said that, ladies? She's older, okay? Abraham says, I'm old. In other words, conception in this circumstance, God, is an impossibility, In fact, it's such an impossibility. What does it say Sarah does when she hears this news? She laughs. And it's not just like this pleasant laugh. I mean, this is a scoffing laugh, like, you've got to be kidding me, right? Reminds me of the scene in The Father of the Bride, the, the, the second one, right? Remember, George and Nina, played by Steve Martin and Diane Keaton, they're about to be grandparents, Right? They're entering that, 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 that awesome new phase of their life. They're about to be grandparents. But Nina's not feeling bad, and the doctor says, I need you and George to come in and talk to you. I've got some news for you. And they're all terrified. Oh, my gosh, what's it going to be? Cancer? Am I dying? What's happening? And then the doctor says, kids, I have some news for you. Remember what he says? You're going to have a baby. And at that moment, Steve Martin, in total Steve Martin fashion, replied, and who, may I ask, is the father, right? It was that big. I mean, he's like, whoa, whoa, this is the immaculate conception. That's Abraham and Sarah. You've got to be kidding me. And so they waited and waited years, decades, but Sarah still hadn't conceived. And so what do Abraham and Sarah do? They do something that we often do in our lives It's called the theology of Ishmael. They concocted a scheme. They wanted to just help God a little bit, right? Just God made these promises, and we're just helping him. We don't want him to be unfaithful. We don't want him to bring an accusation against him because we don't have a child. We're we're going to take matters into our own hands. So they sent Abraham into the concubine Hagar, and she conceived and bore a son Ishmael. Yet Ishmael wasn't to be the child of promise. And we have to ask, why? Because he could have been. God could have worked in that way. Absolutely. I think Paul's point here is that the reason Ishmael was not the child of promise is that what Abraham and Sarah and Hagar had done to come up with a line or a seed in the the line of Abraham, it was all performed in the human flesh, every bit of it. It was by human initiative, it was by human effort, it was by self-salvation, 
It was an act independent, done independently and completely without reference to God. They didn't pray about it. Uh, now, I know all life is precious and miraculous, but there was no supernatural divine intervention. None of that was needed. Now, why is Paul choosing this example to show us about the sovereign mercy of, great, of God? I think the thing is simply this. He's showing us, for Oaks, that salvation is always of the Lord. Salvation is at God's initiative, not ours. Salvation is supernatural. Super, salvation is not something you can conjure up. It's not something that I can generate. It's not something that I can create or that you can create. Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel 37 when he looks at the, at the field of dry bones and he's like, God, who's gonna give these bones life? And God says, I am. My, my spirit is gonna give these bones life. Guys, Jesus said essentially the same thing in John chapter three, a very familiar passage, but does it say what we think it says? Let's read it. Jesus answered him, he's speaking to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, of course, Paul is using this metaphor of born again, it comes from the Old Testament, for what it means to be regenerated for what it means to have your heart changed. That's what regeneration is. And so we have to ask, and here's, the, here's, your, here's your theological question of the day, how is someone born again? I would venture to say that many, if not most Christians, might say, well, Pastor Paul, if you want to be born again, you trust in God. If you want to be born again, you place your faith in Christ. That's the order. Faith first, then regeneration, then being born again. Guys, that's not what Jesus says. We'll go back to the text. He says, unless you've been born again, you can't even see the kingdom, much less enter it. I want you to think about the implications of that. How can you place your faith in Christ if you don't even know you need to place your faith in Christ? How can you see, have spiritual sight unless it is spiritually discerned. So here's the right order. A person has to be regenerated, born again, then they are drawn to Christ. Then they are drawn irresistibly to place their faith in him. The spirit has to regenerate hearts first. Ephesians 2.1, for you were what? Dead in your trespasses and sins. The the th what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2? The things of the natural man are or things of God are foolish to the natural man. He can't even discern them. Guys, do you, do you see what position that puts us in as people? The spirit has to blow. And then the spirit blows where it will, where he will, where he may, where he wishes. Because I was thinking about that this week, about my own conversion experience. And if you're a Christian, you have some sort of conversion story 
Um, first of all, I was one of those people. I was an Israelite outwardly, but not inwardly. In other words, I had grown up in the church, been baptized in the church, committed to the church, gone to all the youth camps, did all the retreats, did all of the things formally that, I, that anybody looking from the outside would have said, yes, that person is a religious person, that person is a Christian. I had a very deep theological heritage, but here's the problem, my heart was unchanged. I didn't want anything to do with it. I would observe it externally because of my parents and religious figures, and that's where you met girls, you know, and all those sorts of things. But in no way was it directing my life. In no way was it serving as some sort of authority in my life. And I didn't want it to, and I was fine that it wasn't. Until the summer of 1988. And that was the summer between my freshman and sophomore years in college. And they say you oftentimes change the most in college between those two years, and I had no idea. Because that was the summer where the wind blew. First of all, the wind blew in and took away this group of friends. And I was like, where did they go? Then the wind blew in all of these crazy campus crusaders who were harassing me all summer long. I didn't ask for this, God, where did they come from? The Spirit blew in some suffering, some trials, some disappointments, things that I had not forecasted into my future. And I remember the day I was on the phone and I was talking to, it was, it was a pivotal call, and, and it was in the middle of the call that I realized that my life was never going to be the same. C.S. Lewis's, um, his conversion story, this is great. He says, when I got on the bus one day, he said, before I got on the bus, I was a non-Christian. But by the time I got off the bus, I had come to believe. Because that's what the Spirit does. And I remember in that phone call for me, I realized about 20 things in the space of about a minute. I realized my life's never going to be the same. I thought I was doing this and dating this person. I'm not. I thought I was working here and going there. I'm not. I thought I was majoring in this and going to do that. I'm not. God just gripped my heart. And I realized in that moment my life was forever changed. Guys, I did not do that for myself. That's something only the Spirit can do. He opened my eyes to see my need for Jesus. And he did the same thing for you if you know him. So Paul's first example here, okay, back to the text, with Abraham and Sarah, is to show that the word of God has not failed and the reason it hasn't failed is that God's saving purposes and word and his spirit always have their way. Always. So what, is, what does Isaiah say? The word of God accomplishes everything for which God sends it out forth. And Paul says, of course God's word has not failed. God's sovereign. God works. God moves. It's his spirit. He saves people. He awakens hearts, salvation is wholly and completely of him. But now Paul wants to use a second example. Okay, let's look back at the text. Paul wants to take things one step further. I told you that Paul loves to anticipate objections, right? And at that point, it could have been possible to say, well, well God, now wait a minute, or Paul. The reason God worked through Isaac and not through Ishmael is like, come on, Paul, 
look who Ishmael's mom was, right? She's this Egyptian Gentile, and she's a slave, and she's not part of the people of God. Well, of course God's going to work through Isaac. Look at who his mom was. This, this, is, this is Father Abraham, Mother Sarah. In other words, this is what we often do. God's supernatural work was somehow constrained by these circumstances. He was, he was, he was, he was just working with what he, what he had to work with. But, but, but this is why God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. So Paul brings up second example number two. He says, well, may I present to you the person of Rebekah. Now, Rebekah is the mom, the wife of Isaac. And of course, she conceives and bears two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, this is notable because how is this circumstance different? Same father, same mother, conceived in the same way, under the exact same circumstances. But yet, when we look at the text, what and Paul again is quoting from Genesis here, while they were still in the womb, before they had done anything good or bad, what does God say? The older will serve the younger. I choose Jacob. Now, this is followed by one of the most infamous and controversial verses in all of the Bible. It's actually a direct quotation from Malachi 1, and here it is. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And even as we read that, don't we just kind of, I'm cringing, or don't you just kind of cringe just, just a little bit? And parents, I don't recommend this as a parenting technique at lunch today, okay? Even though we all know it's true, you have favorites. We, we, we totally get all that, all right? Now, what does it mean? Well, a lot of times we spend so much time saying what it doesn't mean that we don't say what it, what it does mean. We're going to do both. Hate and love, I think, are metaphors for to choose or not to choose. In other words, Jacob I've chosen, Esau I have not chosen. And we actually see Jesus use this word hate in the same way in, in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me, and does not, what, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not saying, go hate your loved ones. What he is saying is that you, to follow Christ, have to have a superior love for Christ. That love has to be superior to any other, or guess what? You'll fall away. You'll find something else better. When push comes to shove, and it's either God or this relationship, you'll, you'll choose the relationship. So Jesus says it's a, it's, a, it's a relative sort of statement. Relative to God, here is your posture towards even those that you love. So when we think about this verse in this context, okay, we don't want to blunt the force of what's being said. Because on one hand, you could say, well, this just means God loved Esau differently, granted. Or God loved Esau just a little bit. Esau was unique, and God loved him in a unique way. I mean, you, you can say all that, but the reality is God chose Jacob. To which some of us might say, well, Pastor Paul, of course God chose Jacob. Because when we preach through Genesis, remember who Esau was, right? 
Esau married a bunch of foreign women. He, was, he, was, he committed polygamy. He married outside the covenant family. Esau was this sort of unruly, unkept, undisciplined dude who was all over the place. To hold Esau was like trying to hold water in your hand. So of course, Pastor Paul, God chose Jacob because we know Jacob was a faithful, righteous man, right? Have you read Genesis anytime in your life, right? Jacob wasn't called Jacob for the heck of it. What does Jacob mean? Deceiver. And guys, in other ways, even distinct from Esau, Jacob was no better, right? Well, what did Jacob do? Jacob, first of all, cheated his brother out of his birthright, concocted a scheme. Then he went and deceived his father, an elderly old man who was laying there, couldn't see, didn't know what end was up, and convinced him he was Esau and to give him the inheritance instead. But not only that, Jacob went on to ghost his whole family, ran to Uncle Laban in the foreign country and stayed hidden rather than, than, than to have to confront his own sin, and he stayed in hiding for almost a quarter of a century. So this idea that what God did was foresee that Esau was bad, or that Jacob was bad, but Esau was much worse, just isn't the case. Guys, Esau was a faithless man, and guess what? Until God, until God got a hold of him, Jacob was too. So here's the question. The question that we all want to ask is, why didn't God choose Esau, right? That's the question we're all thinking, and it's the wrong question. The question is, why did God choose Jacob? You see, both deserved judgment and condemnation. Both deserved judgment and wrath and punishment for sin. Both deserve to be cast from the presence of God. But yet, God says, I will love Jacob. I, even though he deserves wrath and judgment, I'm going to rescue him. I'm going to wrestle with him. I'm gonna send him through life's ringer. I'm gonna do for Jacob what Jacob could not do for himself. I'm going to choose him and anoint him and awaken his heart. And this is what theologians call unconditional election. And it's all over the Bible. Listen to John 15, six. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. What does God want us to do with this? What, what, what is to be our posture as we read texts like this? I think it drives us, church, to a posture of deep humility, of deep need. This is, this is not meant for us to put God on the witness stand and question him or bring accusation against him, or question his ways, we're gonna get to that later in Romans 9. But I think our fundamental posture when we read a text like this is to say, God, why did you have mercy on me, a sinner? God, I was just, I was this clueless college student in 1988 
pursuing my own life, my own desires, my own will, and you would have been completely justified to leave me in my sin. Guys, do you understand that? If we have a problem with that, we don't really fully understand the holiness of God and our own depravity. See, I think a lot of times the reason we have a hard time with this is because we vastly underestimate who we really are. Well, Pastor Paul, I'm, I'm not that bad. I mean, I've, I, I mean, I'm not like a saint, but I mean, I, have, you know, I, I do these things and I do those things and I think God will weigh it all out in the end. Instead of coming face to face with the reality, guess what? We're all Jacob. We're all Jacob. We're all Esau. We're lost, depraved, and Paul says the reason the word of God has not failed is that God is going to get his man. God is going to get his woman. God is going to awaken hearts. Now, let me wind our time down here with three conclusions very quickly, all right? And these are three don'ts, okay? Three don'ts that come from this text. Number one, don't think theology is only for the learned. Isn't it interesting that Paul's answer to the question of whether the word of God has failed or not is to give you one of the most in-depth expositions in all of scripture of the nature and character of God. Because to, to grapple with questions like this, you don't need less learning, you don't need less theology, you don't need less of the word, you need more. And that's why we make available the Resource Center for you, it's why I recommended Dr. Piper's book on the justification of God. Even if you grapple with this and come out at a different place than what you're hearing this morning, okay? Remember the words of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer said, the issue is not whether you're a theologian or not. He said, all of us are theologians. The question is, are you a good one or are you a bad one? Guys, all of us are theologians. All of us answer these questions in a variety of ways. All of us say, God, I've been, I've been praying for my lost family member, child, spouse, whoever, for, for decades. What are you doing? What's happening? How, how am I to make sense of this? All of us supply an answer to that. And so don't think theology is only for the learned. Number two, don't disregard one biblical truth because it's not immediately clear how to reconcile it with another biblical truth. Guys, don't get smarter than God. Unconditional election does not mean that Esau was not a sinner. It doesn't mean that Esau was not fully culpable and responsible for all his choices. He was. Unconditional election doesn't mean that we are not commanded to share the gospel and pray for the lost. We are. See, we're going to get to Romans 10. And by the way, the guy who wrote Romans 9 is the same guy who wrote Romans 10. And here we hear one of the clearest expositions in all of Scripture of the sovereignty of God. But Paul, what does Paul tell us to do for our unsaved friends? He says, share the gospel with them. What else does he say to do? Pray for them. And we might try to play philosopher and say, well, why would we pray or why would we share if God is sovereign? And it's like, are you kidding? God said to do it. And God, to accomplish his sovereign means, uses oftentimes human elements. Guys, we want to accept and embrace all of God's word. 
all of God's truth. And so if this, if this message this morning is raising particular questions for you, just be patient and wait because Paul is going to try to answer a lot of the questions that he anticipates us asking. A big one that a lot of it's running through your minds right now is, Pastor Paul, that doesn't seem fair. And we're gonna get to that question next week because what does Paul say? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What do you think Paul's gonna say? Of course there's injustice. No, okay, we'll get to that next week. Third thing though, this will be it. Church, don't stumble over the word of God. I was teaching one of our pastor's classes a number of years ago, and we're teaching through the statement of faith, and we got to Article 4, which has to do with the sovereignty of God and Reformed theology and things like this. And I noticed that immediately after the class, someone kind of stormed out of the class. They were red-faced, and you could just tell they were, they were angry. And, and I said, hey, man, what's going on? He's like, I, just, I don't believe this. I have a problem with this. I was like, I got it, I got it. Let's, let's get together. And let's talk, I wanna just hear your concerns and let's just open God's word together. And so that began a series of conversations with this person that ultimately were fairly fruitless, not because he didn't come to the same conclusion that I think the scripture teaches. That, that, that wasn't the great failure. The great failure is that he just wouldn't go there. There was sort of this dogmatic stubbornness it didn't mean, it really didn't matter about the Bible, didn't matter about this passage or that passage. He just kind of kept coming back to, I just cannot abide this about God. I, can, I cannot worship a God like that. What was happening over there? He was stumbling over the word of God. Guys, if you come to a different place with a different conviction or you're from a different theological or denominational background, and you're in a different place, don't let it be because you've stumbled at the word. Don't let it be because you've been offended by the word. Let it be because your convictions have been shaped by the word of God, because, which is why we need God's grace to understand these things. We, we need God's grace that we don't lean upon our own human, fallen, sinful, culturally conditioned hearts and minds but we let the word of God speak and stand on its own. Because the gospel is a picture of the unconditional election of God, and here's what I mean. See, before the foundations of the world, before God had made any of us, and before any of us have sinned or not, God had a purpose in unconditional election. God, within the counsel of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, you know, we are going to elect to send forth the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And he, even though he hasn't done anything to deserve it, we are electing him before the foundations of the world to become a man because we know humankind is going to need it. And in sending him, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What Paul is pointing us to in this chapter is that really our only hope and comfort in life and death is Jesus. And Paul says, no, no, no. The word of God has not failed. 
It's not failed with you. It's not failed with my people. It hasn't failed with my son. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at that in more depth. But church, I pray if you have questions or concerns or issues, or this has just sparked a whole series of thoughts in your mind, I would love to talk to you. Any of our pastors and elders would love to talk to you. We want here at Four Oaks to take our stand on the word. And this word in Romans 9 is given for your hope. It is given for your confidence. It is given for your assurance that only God can do what only God can do. Let's pray.